0: I try to teach my kids, we start out with some good fatty acids. Yeah. Start the day. Vitamin A, called liver oil. I give them a little vitamin D. Yeah. I make sure they're hydrated. Then I make them, typically, their breakfast is going to be bacon and eggs or sausage and eggs. Yep. Or I'll do some collagen peptides and some coconut yogurt and some fresh berries on top. Nice. So I kind of rotate and do two or three different breakfasts for the kids, or I make them a protein smoothie yep. and I have that ready for them. And then the kids know they have protein at every single meal.
1: Hey there, my friends. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi, and I want to welcome you back to another episode here on the Fit Father Project and the Fit Mother Project podcast. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with renowned expert in the field of functional medicine, Dr. Justin Marchegiani. Dr. J is a functional medicine practitioner and chiropractor who is dedicated to helping individuals optimize their health and well-being by actually addressing the root cause of their health issues. Dr. Jay is a highly respected figure in the world of functional medicine who specializes in the area of gut health, autoimmune disease, thyroid, and hormone balance. And I want to bring him on today to ask Dr. Justin questions related to these topics so we can have a discussion on understanding what are really the underlying causes of diseases affecting people today, what are the underlying causes of health, and what are some of the specific protocols, supplements, herbs, and nutrients that he uses to help people support holistic healing. Dr. Jay is a prolific content creator and educator with a very strong online presence. He has an awesome YouTube channel with tons of videos. He's also the host of his very own podcast, Beyond Wellness Radio, which I was a guest on. I highly recommend you check that out if you're interested in functional medicine, nutrition, and health optimization. And basically, I am delighted to have you on today, Justin, to share your insights with our communities of Fit Fathers and Fit Mothers. Welcome to the show. Dr. Anthony, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We are... Doctors with Italian last names on the crusade (laughs) to helping people live healthier. And so there's a lot of kindred energy here on many levels. I love it. Now to kick things off, can you tell us how you got into medicine and particularly like functional medicine? Like what was your course to get in here and a little bit of your personal
0: backstory? That's an awesome question, right? So I started out in the world of conventional medicine and it's very easy when you're looking at trying to get to the root cause that there's a deficiency there, right? Conventional medicine, I was in a surgical field, worked in a surgery center. I was what's called the clinical associates. I go in there, position patients during surgery. And a lot of the diabetic patients that came in, I mean, it's quite the experience when you go in and hold the gangrenous limb and the surgeon comes in and ties off the vasculature and pulls out a saw and and removes that limb. It's like, whoa, that's pretty intense. And you can't help but think about how can we get in front of this? How can we prevent this? Mm -hmm. And I remember asking the surgeon afterwards, hey, you know, how can we fix this? How can you prevent it? And, you know, their mindset is, hey, we're just kind of cleaning up the damage and this is all genetic and you don't really have a lot of control over it. And that was kind of their mindset. It was kind of a... You know, they've, you know, you don't have a lot of control, kind of a victimized type of mindset. Yeah. And, and I was kind of already getting into a little bit of natural, like health in regards to training and exercise. And so I just kept on reaching and reaching and reaching about how can we get upstream. And so- and you'll keep on learning different dietary strategies, supplements, and it's easy to see people are having success in reversing these conditions. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, I kind of hooked on to the naturopathic chiropractic philosophy that's vitalistic that your body can heal itself. Yeah. We just have to be there to help kind of remove the impediments so your body can heal. And so that kind of started my education. And then functional medicine was just another path on that journey that pretty much gave me tools to help support that person's ability to heal by getting to the root causes.
1: Okay, let's get into that because a couple of really powerful things. One, I think it came up when I'm thinking about the surgeon's mentality. It's like when you're yeah. a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and there's mm-hmm. not no fault mm-hmm. of his or her own for being in that perspective. But like, you know, they, they weren't trained in the way to do all the things that you do with lifestyle modifications. Two, myself as a trained naturopath, like I think I, I want people to understand this core philosophy that makes it so different from conventional medicine is that we do believe the body has its own innate ability to heal, and it's yes. the doctor's role to support that through conditions Correct. versus I think like in, in the other sense of like a lot of conventional medicine is actually driven through the lens of a doctor's ego. Like the doctor is the one fixing the patient through their intelligence and their protocols. And that puts Correct. the patient in a very disempowering position subtly totally. that, that leads to the current medical system that we have here. So I think that's really cool. You brought that up.
0: Yeah. The conventional medical doctor, they don't really have to get to the root cause, right? Allopathic medicine works in an acute traumatic care model. If I get in a car accident and I bang my head and I need to get stitches, the underlying cause is isolated to that one car accident. Mm-hmm. Therefore, whatever that allopathic ER doctor or surgeon does, the root cause is already addressed. So they're yeah. just facilitating healing, putting that skin together or mending yes. that bone back together because the underlying cause is removed from the equation. Yes. Most of what we're dealing with in conventional medicine or in functional medicine, naturopathy medicine, is the underlying cause is still repeating every day through chronic. Inflammation at a yeah. microscopic level, yeah. so you actually have to get to the root cause because it's not a one-off like traumatic care is, and so that's why allopathic medicine shines in these situations, but it does not shine in these situations over here.
1: Yeah, very well said. That and makes then, sense. Yeah, it, it really does. And then you play, you layer on top of the financial infrastructure, insurance models, and like it makes it very challenging. That's kind of where we feel a little stuck, and I think. It's amazing that there's practitioners like you that are showing people a different way, but not just like with the people you touch with your own hands and your intelligence and your practice, but these kinds of conversations to expand people's minds about the future of the medical landscape and where it could go. And I want to ask a couple of distinctions, like what does functional medicine mean? Because I think this is a term that people are going to see more of. How do we actually define that and make that different than like holistic medicine, naturopathic medicine? Like what is functional medicine to you and how we define the scope of that?
0: Yeah. So functional medicine I just look at is root cause medicine. Now, when you look at root cause, you have people that that think mold is the root cause or Mm -hmm. um, you think infections are the root cause or um, Lyme is the root cause. And so I think it's good to have an open mind that there are many potential root cause or different body systems that are deficient and aren't functioning optimally. And so it's good to have the the mindset, okay, you have the right as a patient to have more than one issue going on at the same time. And so we want to look at diet, we want to look at lifestyle, hydration, electrolytes, nutrient deficiencies, and then look at the gamut of all the body systems. Because it's very easy in functional medicine world to get very specific in one function, one body system of functional medicine. But we want to have the the breadth that there's a lot of different possibilities that could be... um, at, at cause here. And so I think functional medicine is root cause medicine, mm-hmm. but you want to look at it with a very wide perspective so you can take all potential causes at play there.
1: Yeah, that's really well said. I, I think it's the root cause medicine. And then it's also optimizing a number of pivotal body systems that influence all these yep. different pathways. Like gut health is one we'll talk about, hormonal health, mitochondria. Yes. Like, these are the ubiquitous things that affect all these systems. And I also think you bring up an interesting point. I think it's just a natural bias of the human mind. When someone finds something super significant for them, it's like the key that unlocks their issue. Like maybe they actually had Lyme disease as an underlying cause. Or maybe they actually did switch to a super low-carb, diet with no carbohydrates, and they removed a certain food that was inflaming them, so now they think that's the solution for everyone. The truth is it was probably a big part of the solution for them, and we always wanna scream from the rooftops when we have something that's life-changing, but it's good to know that this is like a broader picture We are all unique in in this deep way. But at the same time, we all have these bodies that have similar things. So one of your areas of expertise from a lot of your work I've seen online is gut health. And I, I know this is a topic that we could go for many, many hours on there, but can you give me some of your fundamental premise if you were to give me like your shorter elevator pitch stuff on like, what is the problem with gut health today in our modern society? And then what are some easy ways that people can start
0: to identify and fix and take control over this area of this body system? Great question. So to keep it really simple and concise, the first thing is you can't be eating inflammatory foods. The more inflamed, the more inflammatory the foods are, that's going to impact the gut lining. Mm -hmm. It's going to make the gut lining, break it down, cause more inflammation, impact absorption. It's also going to impact Gut permeability, yeah. right? The more permeable the gut is, the more the immune system interacts with foods yes. in a way that it shouldn't. So you increase food allergens, you increase autoimmunity, yes. uh, leaky gut equals leaky brain. So now you have an increased chance of mood issues and cognitive disruptions to the gut. Of course, lots of processed foods coming in, like processed flours and grains, which are gonna obviously increase fuel source for a lot of the dysbiotic microbes. So now yeah. you have to throw off a lot of the bad bugs and then you add in some antibiotics to it, and that creates more what we call dysbiosis. Yeah. And then I would just say, because we're chronically stressed, we're not breaking down a lot of the food that we're eating adequately. Yeah. We don't have enough hydrochloric acid or enzymes or bile salts because a lot of these nutrients um, and digestive juices come through healthy parasympathetic nervous system response. Yeah. So if we're stressed, we're increasing that sympathetic nervous system and decreasing the um, par- the parasympathetic. And then I would just say beneficial probiotics. I mean, I'm drinking a lower sugar kombucha, mm-hmm. um, natural Probiotic drink, but we don't get a lot of probiotics in our diets. Yeah. Whether it will be from kombucha or whether it be from like fermented pickles or sauerkraut or kimchi. These are all good natural ways we can get it. We aren't getting it. And so we have to get it either through probiotic supplementation or we don't get it. And that can throw our gut bacteria kind of off. Okay. So, so what those is, would be
1: the, the big four or five? That there. was awesome. Like, I mean, as good of a, a quick summary as I could ask for. One thing that I did research recently for some videos I was shooting that I thought was interesting is melatonin. Uh, actually plays a big role in keeping tight junctions tight in the GI tract and reducing inflammation. I didn't realize how significant that was. So another way that circadian rhythm plays into this picture.
0: Yeah, melatonin is really important. Also, just healthy neurotransmitter levels, serotonin, for instance, plays a big role with motility. And so most people, they aren't pooping regularly. And if you have slow motility, you can reabsorb a lot of that toxic, endotoxic debris that's in our gut. So that can be a, a big stressor as well for our body so on the gi tract what what how
1: can we describe a picture like we all know what like gi dysfunction could be it can come in many ways bloating straight up pain constipation or diarrhea or just feeling unwell and blah like we know the feeling when our bodies are like man you feel light and lean and things are flowing through and that's there's that feeling we know the converse so like what is a picture of good health that for good gut health that you would love your patients to achieve? like How would you describe that so someone can locate them on the list?
0: Yeah, I would say you eat a good meal. You feel good. You're not eating so much where you feel tired and stressed. Within 18 to 24 hours, you're, you're having a good BM. You're evacuating everything that you're eating. You're eating enough where you feel like you're able to break it down. You don't feel like it's a brick in your tummy. You're not overly burpy or belchy. Yeah. Um, you don't feel any irritation, any inflammation, any acid reflux. Um, that's usually a good sign, but usually feeling good after a meal not overly tired, feeling like things move through you without any disruption or, or negative symptoms. I think it's a good first start.
1: Yep, and you mentioned like uh, the brilliant thing you said when I asked you about gut health, the first thing you said is you're eating a primarily anti-inflammatory diet. And I, and I do believe this is an area where it's slightly individual. Like yes, there's certain foods that are probably like straight up inflammatory for everyone like if right. we had some fried fish sticks, we made with like un, non-organic wheat or just doesn't even matter. Like that probably yes. not be a good move. Um, but at the same time, there's weird foods. Like sometimes, like some people can tolerate some kind of dairies, and other people, dairy's not good for their health. I want to know how you help people figure out what works well for them in terms of foods. I want to know what works well for you in a little bit about your routine and just the process of getting someone to understand what their ideal anti-inflammatory diet is? Or even if you have things that are just like, not this is like totally based on my experience. This is like some of the off-limits stuff that we just don't recommend people touch.
0: That's a great question. I mean, I would say out of the gates, a good kind of a whole 30 or a paleo template is, is a good starting mm-hmm. point for most people. Now I deal with people that are sick and have lots of health issues. So I, I'm I'll kind of give you both sides of the coin. So your typical paleo template is just eating foods that have been around forever, right? meats, vegetables, fats that are not going to be processed. So no hydrogenated trans fats. Staying away from a lot of the processed vegetable oils just because the extraction process destroys the fats. Lots of hexane and solvents in them. So staying away from like, canola and a lot in soy oil so yeah. if we eat like a unsaturated liquid fat it's going to be a cold press avocado or yeah. olive oil we're choosing good healthy saturated fats because they don't oxidize yeah. which means they don't go bad so good coconut oils or tallows or breastfed yeah. beef we're getting fats from eggs and those kind of sources I'm trying to stay away from grains just because grains tend to be more inflammatory and yeah. gluten sensitivity even the non-celiac Gluten-sensitive people still show gut permeability when they eat it. And autoimmune conditions are such on the rise. So I just tell patients, you know, try to keep it out, you know, 80 to 90% of the time. And Mm -hmm. if you cheat, try to be gluten-free. Do white rice over, you know, your typical wheat flour. Mm -hmm. And I just, 80-20 rule is a pretty good principle for people that already have very good health. Yeah. And again, it just depends. Like I have an autoimmune thyroid condition. So even when I cheat, I try to always be gluten-free. Yeah. And so with patients starting out, nuts and seeds and eggs, these can be really good foods. Yeah. And even some dairy, especially butter or ghee, can be great. But some people, if they're really inflamed, that may be a trigger. So starting out, I tend to use an autoimmune diet as a starting off point. So we cut out some of those foods. And then we try to add them back. in. I tell patients, the goal is to find out what your kryptonite is. So it's just pulling out the most likely inflammatory foods as a good starting point. I don't love food allergy testing just because I, I think you can get some good inference from it. But the problem is, it may say, out oh, oh, strawberries, positive. you eat blueberries. A month later, now blueberries are positive and you're yep. playing this whack-a-mole. And it's like, well, what do you do? So my general rule of thumb is, you know, have a little bit of rotation to what you eat. If you love it, rotate it. And so choose, you know, three or four different meats and rotate through them. Try to eat different colors of the rainbow on the vegetables, rotate some of your starches and fats. That gives you a pretty good security that you're not going to be pounding in food allergens by eating the same thing over and over again with a compromised gut lining.
1: Yeah, that's well said, right? I mean, really well said. What's your your hot take on fiber? (laughs) Fiber somehow became controversial over the last Bit of time, and I think because certain people found that like they don't digest plant foods well, or certain plant foods, and other things like this. Like, what's your take on plant fiber, fruits, and veggies? I know you kind of mentioned that you include them, but like, what's your kind of hot take on that?
0: That's a great question, right? I look at people. I look at clinicians. They they get really emotionally attached to what worked for them, and then they they get like they become that person, or they it it becomes hard for them to want to use that tool with someone else. It's like I don't know, like. I couldn't imagine a handyman coming to my house and there's a nail on the wall, but they just, they look at that hammer. They're like, no, I I can't do that. And they they pull out a screwdriver and try to whack the nail in, right? So I just look at it as, no, no, no. I'm not going to be emotionally attached. I'm going to just look at the data, Mm -hmm. look at that person, look what works for them. Maybe look at, you know, a stool test, look at and see kind of their symptoms and the data I have. And I'm going to try to approve and recommend the best modality. So for some people, I see some carnival people, they do really well in carnival. Yeah. But guess what? I'll run some stool testing and I'll see bacterioides and firmicutes just like shot, like super low. And so we'll just start adding things back in like lower- FODMAP, lower fermentable fiber. Maybe it's cooked, steamed, sauteed, see how they do with it. See if I can start adding things back in without making them bloated or gassy. Or we'll add in like, you know, a sun fiber, like a low FODMAP type of guar gum that will feed some of the beneficial bacteria. Or we'll try some green bananas, right? Or some cool potato starch, some resistant starch that's going to still be lower FODMAP. So we get some of that fiber in there, but it's less likely to cause bloat or gas. And so I just try to you know, I just try to like go from the path of least resistance because I, I do see some of the data showing that, hey, having this in there is going to be helpful for the microbiome. Yeah. But you got to look at the patient. And some people, they do really well on a carnivore diet and some don't. But so you got to look and see what works and then just try to take that path of least resistance to the patient. Well said. Um, and my, my hot take, just to add on that, because I agree with
1: everything you just said, is that my read of the research is that microbiome diversity having more species is oftentimes a better thing. And short-chain fatty acids, having those in the gut is very healing and energizing for the gut lining. And so if people can find some of those prebiotic fibers that work well for them in the context, like the ones you recommended are some that we recommend in our programs, green tip bananas, some of the resistant starches from like sweet potatoes and stuff like that, like if you don't feel good eating like tons of beans and legumes, like you don't need to have those in your life. But it's cool if you can find a couple of those things that work well, let alone the benefits of people's heart health of having some good fiber in there on occasion. That's really cool.
0: And you can bring it in by cooking it and steaming it first. That's going to make yeah. it easier. And then the question is why? Well, when we look at our commensal bacteria, the different bacteria we see can go low when that fiber goes low. And when we Give some of that fiber in there like you mentioned you're going to produce things like butyrate yep. these short-chain fatty acids that can shift the ph in the colon yeah a little bit lower which makes it harder for some of the bad bugs to grow so you're you're getting all these good short-chain fatty acids which then shift the ph and make it harder for the bad microbes to exist. For sure. It's so amazing how it's all interconnected, right? Um yeah. Let's talk about that. The- I think the key is you gotta be uh, you know, emotionally unattached hmm. and it's good to have a lot of tools in your tool belt, like kind of like the example of the handyman. The handyman's not gonna avoid the hammer because whatever, right? But clinicians tend to do that. And yeah. so we, we wanna not be emotionally attached.
1: When you don't have as many tools. That's what I like that thing, right? Yes. If you were if you only had one tool, you're gonna be super attached to that tool. So I want to talk about thyroid. I know this is something you you did mention mm-hmm. that you have had a lot of experience with personally as well as helping people. Yes. Is People's thyroids kind of seem like they're like under attack right now. Obviously, it's part of the GI tract, maybe autoimmune stuff, leaky gut. Thyroid is an organ that gets really affected by that in general. What else is going on? It, it's, it's like, it seems that at least with women, like middle-aged women, we have a rampant rise in autoimmune thyroid conditions. Um, but also like, How many, I have so many questions about the thyroid. Let's talk about autoimmune thyroid stuff from the lens of your perspective. I'd also like to hear, do you feel like there is kind of like a thyroid epidemic going on? If so, why is it deeper than uh, GI tract? Is it things like fluoride and bromide? I've heard things like this, pesticides. Like what's going on with the thyroid? And let's talk about the importance of
0: thyroid for a long and healthy life. Yeah, so there's definitely a couple of theories out there. So one out of one out of five autoimmune, one out of five women have an autoimmune condition called Hashimoto's. It's the most common condition out there that's autoimmune. So Hashimoto's Mm -hmm. autoimmune thyroid condition, that means your immune system attacks self. Now, why there's a lot of different like theories. So of course, like there's things like fluoride 2015 study out of the UK shows the fluoride is the halide that can bind into that same group as iodine, which can negatively impact thyroid function. Not necessarily autoimmune, but it can kind of down-regulate thyroid function. There's other data points looking at Roundup and how Roundup used to be used, right? Which, where they would take antibiotic resistant bacteria from different plants and they would put it into, um, let's say wheat, for instance. Mm -hmm. And then you could essentially dump Roundup with an airplane (laughs) over the entire field and then kill everything but the wheat. So you used to have to like use pesticides like sparingly, right? You just kind of go in and use, because it would kill everything, right? So you used to actually have to use it responsibly. And so once they were able to take antibiotic resistant genes and plug them into wheat, for instance, or different grains or soy, mm-hmm. now you could come in there and you could take and you could douse with an airplane a lot of this wheat field. And they found that actually doing, let's say, say these dry, these flyby crop dustings with Roundup, if you do them earlier in the season, it would also desiccate and dry out the wheat, yep. which would decrease the chance of mold. And so because of that, we have a lot more Roundup exposure. There's some data points that that may be increasing gut permeability and decreasing brush border function, mm-hmm. so less digestion and absorption. Some data maybe that's increasing the gluten content in those grains. Right. Either way, we're increasing gut permeability, we're causing more inflammation in the gut, and then we're potentially adding more gluten into the intestinal tract at the same time. So I think that plays a big role. Yeah, I think um, just a lot of inflammation due to stress that lowers stomach acid, that lower, lowers enzymes. And when we don't break down foods adequately, we have a greater chance to have an intolerance to that food. Yeah. I think those play a big role. And I think also um, just the general overprescribing of antibiotics the last couple of decades has thrown off the microbiome. You have a lot more dysbiotic bacteria, a lot more endotoxin, LPS, which is going to increase gut permeability as well. I think there's a couple. I mean, you could throw in fluoride, you could yeah. throw in mold. But I think those, if you look at like, you know, what, what signals, what, what things have really changed in the last few decades? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big one out of the gate. I do too. I do agree. That's a really good rundown.
1: Are uh, you a fan of getting iodine through dietary sources is, or selenium, Brazil nuts, like for thyroid health? These are things like I personally focus on. I'm trying to eat a little more seaweed and I eat a couple of Brazil nuts on occasion. Like what are your sources nutritionally for having a healthy thyroid?
0: It's a great question. So out of the gate, the literature on iodine is very interesting because hmm. people will go back and they'll say, hey, you know, if you go look at these Asian studies, especially in Japan, they were, they were saying that 13... So 13,000 milligrams, Mm -hmm. 13,000 milligrams, right? 13 grams a day is what's consumed in these Japanese islander populations, right? And so it was a Nagasaki study about 10, 12 years ago that that was actually 10x elevated. So you had lots of people prescribing and recommending iodorol or different um, Lugol solutions that had super mega doses of iodine in it. And when you go look in the literature, you were seeing increases of Hashimoto's thyroiditis due to increased iodine. Mm. And so you had this old data was driving the increase in high-dose iodine supplementation. And so your your kind of food-based recommendation of iodine would probably be somewhere between 500 micrograms and maybe one milligram daily. I think the RDA is around 150 to 250 Mm -hmm. per day microgram-wise. And so I always tell patients, Number one, get your thyroid looked at. Make sure antibodies are not elevated because mm-hmm. you can increase antibody stimulation with iodine. So you have to be careful of that. So you don't want to come in and megadose. That can be a problem. Number two, when iodination happens, it spits off hydrogen peroxide. Now, why is that a problem? That can increase B cell infiltration into the thyroid and cause more attack. Mm-hmm. Now, what takes that hydrogen peroxide and neutralizes it is selenium. So before you throw in any of Extra iodine above and beyond that couple of hundred micrograms, that's where it's helpful to have the selenium, yeah. the zinc, the magnesium, have all the other nutrients and try to get the inflammation down. So if someone's coming in, their diet's process, eating a bunch of gluten, their antibodies are elevated, and you just come in and slam them with iodine out of the gates, probably not the best thing. Support everything else but that. I mean, you can definitely make sure you're you're doing, you know, the couple hundred micrograms you may get in a multivitamin or in a general thyroid product. Yeah. So maybe maybe like 250 to 500 a day. Yep. And then of course, if you're going to be eating, you know, the, the set that I use to kind of look at like top foods, I go to like myfooddata.com and I just look at the top iodine foods. So you're going to get some in some eggs. Yep, eggs. You're going to get obviously your your, your seafood, your dulse, your, your kelp. Yep. These are all going to be other sources that you can, you know, get iodine in. If you look at other ones that you're still going to be getting a little bit in, eggs, I'm pretty sure salmon's going to be one as well. Um... I'm pulling it up here on my screen. I'll kind of give you guys a couple other ideas. So your shrimp, uh, tuna. Yep. So these are other good options. Um, turkey, eggs, yeah, cod. You know, obviously your seaweeds and have a bunch, right? You're gonna get a lot there. Potato. Yep. Um, so you have a lot of options. If you're just eating like a paleo or a whole food kind of template, you're gonna get three to five hundred micrograms probably just through those foods a day yeah. anyway. My big thing is just, you know, there was some faulty data that came out 10, 15 years ago. People took that, ran with it we're mega dosing thyroid issues. And I've seen people really, you know, have some negative responses to that. I've seen some do well, but if you're gonna go higher dose, be responsible, get your thyroid levels looked at. I always recommend starting at, let's say that couple hundred microgram dose and then go up weekly, very slowly, and then just monitor your levels, make sure antibodies and inflammation's not getting worse. And ideally get the gut figured out first because that's where 80% of your immune cells are. Yeah, And people that have Hashimoto's, they're going to have low vitamin D, low glutathione, have dysbiosis, H. pylori, blasto, other gut issues. So get those things stabilized before you overly kind of push it.
1: Hey, it's Dr. Ray. I want to quickly pause this episode to thank you so much for listening to this Fit Mother Project podcast. I am just blown away out of how amazing this podcast has become, all the powerful stories, all the great expert interviews, and I am so grateful for you for tuning in and being here with everything we're creating here at the Fit Mother Project. I just wanted to pause to acknowledge you and thank you again for listening. Please keep listening and tuning in to all the great stuff we're doing here at the FMP. Let's get back to today's episode. Yeah, and one thing I'll say about functional medicine does better than a lot of conventional medicine is functional medicine does better lab testing. I'm sure there's some more extensive lab testing that can be done beyond just a doctor literally running just a TSH and maybe just a total T4, like the most basic bare bone stuff you can do. So what do you like to see on a routine uh, thyroid screen? Are there particular blood tests that someone could write down from this podcast that they could have their doctor look into?
0: That's a great question. I mean, TSH is a good, um, a good one to look at out of the gates. Again, it's a late stage screening agent. If your TSH has been is elevated, it's you probably had a thyroid issue for a decade. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem. So but if you have TSH that's let's say, you know, three and a half to four and up, you definitely have more than likely a thyroid issue downstream. But you gotta look at it, right? Because conventional medicine just typically prescribes some synthroid or thyroxin, which is a T4 molecule with a sodium salt on it, just to bring that TSH back down to normal. Because again, when your TSH is high, it is whipping a tired horse. It is yelling at that thyroid to make more thyroid hormone, so it can swell that thyroid up. So yeah. you do want to bring that down, but you want to look at your T4 for sure. You know, T- T4 free is the most important, but obviously free in total is great to look at both. Usually with patients, I'll come out of the gate with a free and total T4 and a free and total T3. I like we'll that. We'll look at TPO antibodies. Mm-hmm. We'll look at thyroglobin antibodies, maybe a reverse T3. And then yeah. usually afterwards, I'm just running TSH, T4 free, T3 free, and then the for antibodies if needed. Yeah. Yeah, for management. It just depends. Most times, the free is the most important number. And if they kind of all correlate, it's usually not necessarily running the total and the, and the free every single time.
1: Yeah, so I want to recap that for people so they understand Oftentimes, doctors will run just a TSH, TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, and maybe a total T4, which is obviously important. But what Dr. J just kind of suggested, at least for initial workup, is a TSH, yes, total T4 and free T4, total T3 and free T3, and then maybe those thyroid those those yes those thyroid antibodies uh, that he mentioned as well, anti TPO, anti thyroglobulin, and these other ones. Like that's just more
0: comprehensive, and then you can manage with less labs moving forward. Was that a correct yeah, and your statement? Range of, yeah, that's correct. Okay. That's correct. And your TSH, a good rate. Like, that's a, really a brain hormone. It's crazy. People are like, let's, let's look at your thyroid. It's, it's a brain hormone that talks to your thyroid to make that. So again, if it's off, there's definitely concerns, but it's a brain hormone. So we, we want to look at and see where the thyroid is functioning and dysfunction because you could actually have TSH that's decent, but you're having conversion issues downstream that are off. Yeah. So 0.5 to 2.5 with your TSH is fine. You know, ideally right around 1 is good. Mm -hmm. With T4 free, somewhere between 1 and 1.5 is solid. T4 total, 6 to 10 is pretty good. T3 total, 100 and up, 100 100 to 150 is good. T3 free, let's say 3 to low force is good with T3 free. Reverse T3 probably between 12 and 20, 12 and 18, 19. Mm -hmm. Right in there is good. And of course, with your antibodies, you know, below 20 on the TPO and below 1 on the thyroglobulin antibody. So for everyone
1: listening to this, this is the exact stuff that a functional medicine doctor does. They get into the deeper blood work and have that inform root cause stuff. So whether or not, like you don't need to understand how to read your own lab work, although you do have this episode to pause and listen and jot some notes down if you want. But point being, more testing on the thyroid can be good. I want to move on to hormone balance in general. Um, what are your takes on bioidentical hormones for women midlife and testosterone replacement therapy for men in midlife like how does that kind of play into your approach to medicine therapeutic
0: order all these things yeah my opinions on this have definitely evolved the last decade so with women like if you look at the data on female hormones female hormones especially as they get older are very anti-inflammatory there's all kinds of improved benefits with immune system mm-hmm. brain function skin elasticity libido it all comes down to philosophy mm-hmm. right so you have hormones have a bad rap because of the women health initiative study in the early 2000s where they were giving essentially horse hormones extracted from urine. So you have your Premarin, Provera, not good, right? Mm -hmm. Horses come out big and walking, right? So hormones have a big um, impact on growth and development. Hence, horses are a little bit different than we are. So you see the increased risk from the Premarin, Provera, studies with cancer. And so if we're going to use hormones, I like to fill in the gap of what's missing, not replace the entire system. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a philosophical thing. So if we look at women, let's say especially more menopausal, we're going to be doing more estriol potentially. I like to always give herbs to help with the upstream signaling to work on receptor sites. There's different herbs like maca or Damiana that mm-hmm. can work wonderful at the receptor sites or or females with LH and FSH like Chase tree or tribulus can work great at the upstream signaling. Yeah. So I do like a little bit of estriol and progesterone. Mm-hmm. Again, we may give intravaginal hormones too of those same nature if there's dryness or vaginal tissue atrophy
1: mm-hmm.
0: with females that are cycling, a little bit different because you have to time up the progesterone with that luteal phase. This is a mistake. If you're taking hormones every day as a cycling woman, that's going to totally, that's what basically birth control pills are for the most part. Mm-hmm. So that's going to impact FSH and LH and fertility and ovulation. So you have to time up those hormones. And again, we'll give different herbs as well to help with that FSH, LH signaling. And so that's kind of how I handle it with women, but it's kind of using hormones as a nudge or a jumpstart versus a full-on replacement model, which you've seen some MDs, they've They've taken some of the stuff that we do and they've kind of bastardized it and made it into a replacement model right. versus like a support model. So mm-hmm. I'm more into into a support versus a total full-on replacement.
1: Nice. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. On the men's side, what, what's your take on testosterone replacement therapy? It's,
0: it's a great question. So here's my theory: If someone comes in, uh, let's say they're in their 50s, they're overweight, they're inflamed. I just want to get a baseline where they're at. Let's get you losing weight. Let's get your diet rock solid. Let's get you doing some some weights. Some, some movement, some resistance training to get you sleeping good. Let's get you on good nutrients so you can make everything. Let's get all the xenoestrogens out of your system, whether it's mm. soy, plastics, pesticides. Let's see how good we can get you. Yeah. And let's say we're still on that bottom, you know, let's say 300 or below, Yeah. then it may make sense to add something in. Again, I would go with glandular support, mm. orchid glandular, a multi-glandular support. I would go with tribulus. I would go with zinc and all the core nutrients if any because if you have low zinc or low selenium that could be impacting testosterone too i would rule all those things out make sure the gut's working and i would try to use herbs and glandulars first see how far we can get and if we're still really low or we're not seeing improvement then i would definitely look at that because i've seen some people some guys who their levels were low we were able to get massive improvement increased libido mood muscle and they were still on the lower side but their improvement it it looked like they had an 80 or 90% bump at testosterone not a 20. So sometimes yeah. the symptoms don't match what the the range is. I've seen massive right. improvements in symptoms but the range only bumped up a little bit. So there's something else happening at the receptor site level that's definitely yeah. making things not correlate all the way. But I'm open to it if we do everything else and then we hit that Too many guys come in. They don't make any of the foundational changes. They just dump in testosterone. And then a lot of times, they're not being responsibly dosed. They just aromatize it and create more estrogen, and it makes the problem even worse. I see that exact same thing. And I really do appreciate how
1: detailed you were with the methodical approach of going through you know, working on most foundational levels. Again, this is kind of good functional medicine, then building up mm-hmm. to eventually someone may get to a point where they have actual external hormones for TRT, but there's an order to go through that first. And I'm seeing it right now with men, they're it's being prescribed to men in their 20s and 30s now. Like, like, and that's a pretty big decision to start on that stuff way, that early, right? I mean, let alone taking injections the rest of your life or to be very shut down from that. I mean, it's, it's a, yeah. it's a bigger thing than people maybe realize.
0: And I see too many doctors too. They're using these pellets. I'm, tar- I'm sorry, the pellets do not give you good, stable levels. If you're going to do TRT, you're much better off doing, like if you're a guy, like doing an injection of testosterone once or twice a week yeah. or or doing a low dose cream on your testicles or doing some kind of a trochee where you can stabilize that dose. Cause I'll test guys and they'll be like, they'll be super high. And then like two months later, they'll be low at the last month. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they literally go from like 1200 to 200 in the span of like two, three months. I'm like, Ted is not stable. Like <laughs> yeah. if I'm giving someone dose, I want their hormones within that 10% range yeah. throughout the entire month, not like up and down
1: mm-hmm. like that. So I want to kind of loop this. So little...
0: a real question for you. Yeah. Do you have any preference for delivery when you recommend for, hormonal for, Yeah,
1: for men, I think
0: the for, inject- guys. The, for guys, Injection? injectables is injectables, the best method in my opinion. Do you, do you have
1: any opinions of some of the chokies? I haven't, I don't have direct experience like a with them. I don't have direct experience with them, but it seems like it's a really convenient delivery mechanism. That's
0: what I, yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to like, I don't prescribe it. So I'm just trying to, I try to get enough data points yeah. and, and what's working and what's not. But I see most MDs going to these pellets and I just don't see them doing well at all. Yeah. And, I, and I'll run estradiol right? I'll run estradiol, I'll run SHGB, and I'll even run total estrogen. And man, some of these guys, they're over-aromatizing, which just means yeah. when testosterone gets too high, you convert testosterone to estrogen.
1: Yeah, it seems like that's definitely more of a risky run with the pellet, exactly as you talked about, due to the the, the, the more variable release curve versus the injections. I'm with you Bingo. on that.
0: Bingo. You said it perfectly, that variable release curve. That's exactly the best way to describe it. Yeah, right. I agree. All right, so let's talk about... Um,
1: Things that you personally have found are beneficial, and that you maybe teach to your patients and clients about helping the body stay in a more parasympathetic, less stressed state. Because this is obviously a huge thing. You talked about earlier how it affects all the digestive hormones, the gut lining, and we're in, we're just as busy and stressed as ever as, as as Westerners right now. Like, what do we do, and how? What are some things that you do to keep yourself in a, a
0: relaxed, healthy parasympathetic state as much as possible? It's a great question. So I'm already doing it right now. So big thing out of the gate is good parasympathetic deep breathing. So mouth closed, breathing in through the nose, four to five seconds in, one second pause, four to five seconds out. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing it with a big belly breath. So when I, basically you're making yourself look like you're eight months pregnant yeah. when you're, when you're breathing out, like you're, you really, you really, and then out. So Mm -hmm. you're allowing that diaphragm to drop, which is pushing your intestines out a little bit. And then you have all these parasympathetic nerve fibers up in that nose. Mm -hmm. And so really breathing in. You'll notice that sympathetic nervous system causes mouth breathing. Yeah. And you get the intercostal muscles in the neck. So you're, (sighs) so you basically, the the exercise I get patients is put one hand on your chest, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: one hand on your tummy. And when you breathe in, you want your bottom hand to move out. Yeah. And when you breathe out, you want your bottom hand to move in. So, in other words, bottom hand, top hand, you want all the movement coming from the bottom and not the top. If you're, if you're, Mm -hmm. then that's the stress breathing. That's the intercostal muscles of the neck. Yeah. Lifting the rib cage up. That's going to create more stress. So, when you breathe through the nose Mm -hmm. and you distend the belly and you can put one hand on the bottom here, one hand on the top, that's going to guide you. And that's going to give you a good idea if you're in that parasympathetic state. Yeah. So, your typical diaphragmatic breathing, in through the nose, that kind of box breathing pattern. Mm -hmm. I would say on top of that, you know, appreciation is so important. Yeah. As a society, you get we get so focused on everything we have yet to achieve or what's wrong and not about what's right. So the appreciation check is so, so important. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I mean, other modalities that I use, I have a hot tub, a sauna, Mm -hmm. cold shower. So I'll use some of those modalities to really promote relaxation. Yeah. Excellent as well. Yeah. And I think that's a, a first... A couple. I mean, I have whole body vibration that I'll use Mm -hmm. and I love my adaptogenic herbs. So I'll rotate in different adaptogenic herbs to kind of help promote good HPA access, good stress relief. I'll do an Epsom salt. When I'm seeing patients on the phone, I'll go drop a nice hot Epsom salt foot bath, which is magnesium sulfate. Put my feet in there that absorbs all that magnesium transdermally right into the bloodstream. Really good relaxation as well. That's awesome.
1: Really, really good high-level stuff there. And I love that you actually did start with breathing. It's like the least sexy on the list, but it's the most foundational. You're going to do so it every simple. every moment for the rest of your life while you're still embodying it. And, just, body, and right? be
0: aware, like when you're in that stress response, like kind of go out of body and like watch yourself because you'll notice that when you get stressed, yeah. that natural shallow breathing, or even you'll just kind of, you'll stop breathing like for mm-hmm. five, 10 seconds. So you'll just stop. And so just keep that breathing going just really allow that to flow, allow that diaphragm to drop and that belly to go out. And that's going to be key for parasympathetic response. Nice.
1: For sure. All right. I want to pivot again. And um, I want to talk about kids and I want to talk about the future generation, right? I mean, a lot of the work that you and I do is helping people in midlife Mm -hmm. turn things around and change bad habits and get good habits in place. What are you seeing as like the trends and the direction, maybe the risks and also the opportunity of the younger generation that's growing up? You know, we know their health is in a pretty shoddy state for the most part with higher levels of addiction, inactivity, circadian rhythm, disbalance, dis and stuff like that. Can you speak into what you what your kind of take is on the younger generation health and what we can look and do as parents and maybe stuff that you are doing with your family?
0: Great question. I love this topic. I have two young boys. Um, Hudson is four, Aiden is six. So we're in the thick of it. They are super strong-willed kids. And so we're always we're always doing this. And so I think the first thing when it comes to health is the big mistake I see parents make when it comes to their kids and and their health. And I'll kind of give some examples is your, your job as a parent is to give your kid what they need, not what they want. Mm-hmm. So I, I see too many parents trying to be their kid's friends. And so it's like my son, we wake up and he's kind of in a mood and I'm like, all right, Aiden, it's time to come over. We're going to take cod liver oil. Let's line up. It's like, I don't want to. It's like, all right, well, we have two choices, right? We can we can go in a timeout or we can do this other thing or we can go to call never You choose. So I try to give my kid choices. I think choices are really important because mm-hmm. you don't want your kids just following orders all the time. You yeah. want them making choices. That's important. But in the real world, provides consequences for bad choices. Mm-hmm. If you don't go to work, right, you you lose your job, sure. right? That's pretty bad consequences. And so I try to teach my kids. We start out with some good fatty acids. Yeah. Start the day. Vitamin A, call never well Give them a little vitamin D. Yeah. I make sure they're hydrated. Then I make them... Typically, their breakfast is going to be bacon and eggs or sausage and eggs, or I'll do some collagen peptides and some coconut yogurt and some fresh berries on top. So I kind of rotate and do two or three different breakfasts for the kids, or I make them a protein smoothie, and I have that ready for them. And then the kids know they have protein at every single meal. I'll give them a little bit of amino acids, some NAC. Mm -hmm. I'll give them uh, a good multivitamin. And I also give them a little bit of brain support. So I'll give them a little bit of ginkgo and some curcumin and some good nutrients to get their brain and blood flow working. So I try to have some good supplementation, good routine. Again, I see my my kids' school is a great little private school. It's really nice, kind of Montessori-esque, but they miss protein at their lunch a lot of time. And so we'll pack our kids uh, extra protein. And my son, (laughs) it's hilarious. We were out um, at a restaurant and we were with some friends and the parents let their kid eat their dessert first before the meal. (sighs) And my son went up to them. He's like, What are you doing? You're not, where's your protein? You're gonna have a blood sugar issue. What are you doing? (laughs) And my kids are giving our friends, um, parents, a lecture on nutrition and they just felt so bad. And (laughs) it's just like, there's that disconnect. And so obviously, any parents understand you give your kids sugar. Mood issues, focus issues, ADHD issues. The problem is we're just overly diagnosing generations with ADHD, ADD, and it's really nutritional blood sugar type Mm -hmm. of issues, or they're just boys and they need to be outside and be playing and roughhousing more, right? It's a combination of all that. Mm -hmm. So I think giving kids choices, setting your kids up for success with good nutrition, good blood sugar, good fats, anti-inflammatory diet, start the day. Um, I think choices, consequences, give your kids what they need, right? Yeah give them strong role models. I think that's a good foundation and let them play,
1: let them have fun too. That's really important. Brilliant, brilliant answer that covered a lot of landscape. I took a lot from that personally
0: as a dad. I want to ask you, I saw one study recently too, where there's, there was a study looking at kids kind of negative outcomes in kids because kids aren't able to play without parents looking over their shoulders. So I think it's creating an environment where kids can play and you're not just hovering over them. I think that's really, really good too. For sure. That like, um, that's creating a, a degree of nervous system
1: resiliency too, where the kid feels mm-hmm. like they can go and expand and like be be safe in their own being outside of the the parent. Yeah, so fascinating for yes. sure. Hey, what do you think about technology? Like how is that playing in? I know your your boys are a little young to be having like phones, but maybe they have watched stuff on an iPad. But what what's the influence on tech right now that's affecting health? Like how big of a variable is that? Like I tend to think it's oh. like really pretty massive, but like what's your take
0: on it? I think it's incredibly massive. Um, We only give, like, after church, my wife and I will go to a a little restaurant, and maybe they get 20 or 30 minutes of iPads so my wife and I can, like, chat and, like, relax Mm. and have time together without being interrupted. But, like, max, they get 20 or 30 minutes every couple of days, and they have to earn it. But outside of that, very little iPad. I find iPad is terrible. TV does better if we can watch, like, a nice show, like Daniel Tiger, and we watch you know, there's different shows that we'll watch where there's like a storyline and then there's like an arc and they can like watch it and take it in. Like I think this morning we watched Charlotte's Web, mm-hmm. right? Where the, it's the iPad, it's like, stop, go, stop, go. And they kind of get ADD and they just, yeah. there's no continuity of what they're watching. Yeah. There's that component and a little bit lack of control what to watch. I mean, I have YouTube Red, so I just download a lot of the videos mm-hmm. that I've already pre-screened that I know are good. So then there's not like surprises yeah. and we just kind of keep it in airplane mode. So that's a good option. Yeah, I do the But same I thing. find iPad, iPad is absolutely the worst but again, as a parent, it can be really convenient. Like my wife and I go out, like it's nice to give him my iPad for 30 minutes so we can have some peace and quiet and not be interrupted. But at the same time, it's like you're robbing Peter to pay, pay Paul. Yeah, We gave my son a little bit of iPad last night and he was terrible. So we're like, all right, no <laughs> iPad this weekend. Right. But at the same time, there's some really nice apps. Like there's some great learning apps yeah. for like, and I'm in there looking over my son's shoulder as he's engaging. It's Great apps for reading, sounding out words. Yeah. So there's some good things on there from a learning standpoint. But everything else, uh, it can be pretty destructive. So I would say keeping iPad down to a minimum. TV is a little bit better. We even try to min- minimize that. I mean, my kids maybe, I would say on an average day, they don't get any iPad or any TV. Every Like this morning, they had school off today because they had conferences. Mm-hmm. So this morning, we watched uh, Charlotte's
1: Web. Nice. I try to keep it down low to a minimum. Good rundown. I like that. Do you, do you have your kids protect from blue
0: light or do blue lockers or is that not a part of the routine? Not, not a ton right now because we try to keep the lights naturally going down. Yeah. I have dimmer switches in most rooms. Okay. And so as nighttime comes in, we just kind of dim the light a little yeah. bit, you know, 60, 70%. So that kind of naturally mm-hmm. comes in and my kids, their latency to fall asleep. It's like lights out at like eight o'clock, my son Aiden is out within 30 seconds of light being <laughs> off. So their latency is just like super, super fast. That's good. And so not a problem with myself. I wear glasses the night when I watch TV or on my iPad, yeah. and I do have blue blocking lenses in those. So I do think that's important. Are all the kids' night lights are all amber lights, yeah. so there's no blue light in their night lights. That's low hanging fruit for any parent out there. And then I do just keep the the dimness of an iPad or that keep it down. But again, they don't get an iPad during the week. Or, or nights at all. Nice. I so, love that. And I want, but, I want oh, people to hear and, that, like and, and change And my their wife lives. and I have very strong opinions too. Like my kids will not have a smartphone at all until they're 18. Yeah. I, I am convinced on that. I've been around too many kids at parent functions, with other parents, and I see the 13 to 14 year old kid, like totally antisocial on their phone in the corner. And I'm like, heck no. Mm-hmm. You need to put those kids, make them a little bit more extroverted, get them engaged with the parents and other kids and the phones. Kids just don't, they don't have the ability to control it and to be able to disconnect from it. Not to mention you get any of the bullying, like, yeah. you know, sharing pictures and all of that. It, it, like imagine being in school when we were 20, 25 years ago, now it's on steroids with these phones. So I would really put the kibosh on that. And I, I would send my kid to a high school that doesn't involve. You see, so many schools, they, they, kids have to have iPads, they have to have everything. I would try to disconnect from that, where that isn't as big of a an issue.
1: Well said. Yeah, I think there we are going to see a trend towards more people using dumb phones intentionally and having their kids do that for all the reasons that you just
0: stated. Now, uh, and when you look at the big tech inventors of these things, they do not let their kids use it at all. Yeah, that's that, the irony. That speaks magnitudes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. like, I forget who it was, but maybe the CTO of like, who was like Facebook doesn't let his kids like yep. have phones or anything like that. That's hilarious. Yep. Um, totally. Okay. So I want to ask you about some exciting trends or developments in functional medicine that you're following or excited about, or maybe just like forecast us in the next 10 years. Like, what do you think's around the corner that is going to really move the
0: needle for us? That's a great question. You know? I, I am not sure. I mean, you have so many things come up, and there, there are like more marketing avenues. Yeah. But the question is, how much clinical fruit is is bare? Is you know, yeah. comes off of that, right? So that's really the hard component, I think, in regards to. I'm not really sure, man. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of out of that loop because I'm I'm listening to podcasts like you are. I read articles and I do that, but there hasn't been too many things that have popped up on my radar that I'm super. Excited about. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like I like some of the testing, mm-hmm. so I can look deeper at inflammation in the gut. I like some of the deeper hormone testing. That's great. I like um, always looking at what what is cutting edge in regards to like mold or toxicity yeah. or um, or different you know metabolic testing. I, I like just you know simple. Functional glucose tolerance testing. I would yeah. love there to be a fasting insulin on my on my glucose monitor. That would be amazing That'd as be well. Cool. So I can look at fasting insulin through the day. That'd be really cool. Or a cortisol test throughout the day. That'd be really cool. Some of the wearables are nice. I have my Fitbit Inspire 3 on the aura, because then I can get a window of HRV mm-hmm. and parasympathetic tone that way. So those would be the big things. Like I'm always looking about like, what is this test or data? How is it going to help me change? how I interact with this patient and my recommendations to get them better faster. Yeah. So that's kind of how I'm looking at it. I'm always slowly adding things in all the time. So everything I'm doing is always slowly evolving, so to speak. I'm not like waiting years and then let's let's do an overhaul. I'm always slowly doing it. How about you though? What are you seeing that's curious for you?
1: Well, I think that we're, this kind of lens and landscape has really shifted big into this longevity anti-aging front. And I think we're yep. coming to understand the primacy of mitochondrial health And then how electrons flow through the body. Like, that's not rocket science. Like, we know this, but I think we're becoming, it's becoming even more important. And funny enough, everything that you mentioned throughout this entire episode is stuff that works on those pathways. So it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not like we're discovering new things that you should do, but maybe just like reasons why all these foundational lifestyle stuff that we know helps people is so essential. I, I mean, I, I don't want to go off the rabbit hole for the to end this because it gets a full conversation. But I think that we will start to see more about the effects of non-native EMF um, as a yep. as a big yes. as a big toxic variable of the body. Like we're just not meant to be bombarded by that all the time, and yep. it does affect the mitochondria. It does affect all these metabolism yes. pathways. So, and the brain. So, I think that's unfortunately for people, they're going to have to come to terms with that in their lives. Uh, that that's an obstacle to health.
0: And then is there any strategies that you're recommending just for the average person that I think has You did a good a job already. Yeah. To- I
1: think you yeah, hardwire your computer in. If you're on a, wherever you're yeah. doing on a daily, well, one, yep, whatever you're using on a daily basis, get it ethernet plugged in. Two, when you're not using your phone proximity, get it a little further away from you. When you can go yep. on airplane mode, especially if your kids are using tech, try to put things on airplane yep. mode and then get your bedroom yep. to be pretty rock solid. Like... Get some kind of reader or test to know that your bedroom is is good, and then whether you choose to do a grounding bed or you buy any of these kind of grounding gear stuff, like I think they're good to invest in. They're not that expensive, um, but low EMF bedroom. I mean, that's like a third of your life right there. Just optimizing that one room. Yep. So I think that's
0: great. You can get a safe and sound meter and just kind of check out your room. Yeah,
1: and that totally makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to ask you. This was a like, dude, you absolutely crushed this in terms of the breadth of things that we covered. And I know this is honestly funny enough, just scratching the surface on the work that you do. Mm -hmm. Tell our listeners how they can find more about your work, including your books, your podcast, your online resources, and if they'd like to actually work with you and your team on the functional medicine front.
0: Oh, absolutely. So you head over to justinhealth.com, J-U-S-T-I-N, like my name, H-E-A-L-T-H.com. When you're there, there's podcast link and a blog link where you can subscribe. You can also sign up to get the first chapter of my thyroid reboot book. Thyroid reboots coming out this winter, hopefully final round of editing. So get the first chapter there. So really excited for that book. And I see patients worldwide. So there's a little work Dr. J button up there. If you want to dive in on the functional medicine side, happy to connect. Dr. J,
1: thank you for expanding our minds, giving so much sound advice. And Honestly, just showcasing how much you know about this stuff. It's really, it's really impressive. And I also know being young and vital like you are, you have a lot of years left on here. So it's gonna be cool to watch your career continue to unfold, let alone like 10, 15 years, the kind of things you're gonna know and all the people you help is is really inspiring. So thank
0: you, brother. I appreciate you. Dr. Anthony, thanks so much. Your questions were awesome, man. Really appreciate the back and forth dialogue. You're welcome. Thanks. Hey there, my friend. Thank you
1: so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Fit Mother Project Podcast. If you love what you heard, I have a favor to ask you. Please consider taking 60 seconds right now to leave us a rating and review on our podcast. Leaving us a review is super quick. It only takes a minute and it's so, so helpful to us as it really boosts this podcast to reach more people who need this information and this message. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, you can leave us a star rating and review. If you're watching on YouTube, you can hit the like button and leave us a comment. Overall, I truly appreciate you being with us here on the podcast. On behalf of me and my entire Fit Mother Project team, we truly feel honored and grateful to support you and your family on your journey to fantastic health. I thank you for your support of this podcast and of this mission.